happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. You're listening to the EdTech Situation Room, episode 246 for January the 19th, 2022. My name is Wes Fryer, coming to you from Oklahoma City, where it is really getting cold for us. Um, and I am still the technology integration specialist, the it, technology innovation I can't even say my name. I've had it for three years and I can't even say it. Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School. And I'm joined as always by the EdTech Yoda of the North, <laughs> Dr. Jason Neifer, who has got his flannel on, staying warm in what I'm sure is a cool Montana night. Um, I am. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. That's correct. My name is Jason Neifer. I am, I almost call myself my old title, the Executive Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And yeah, we're, um, we're cold, but it's, it's kind of standard January cold. And unfortunately this year it's been coming with a lot of, 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 of uh, cool rain during the day, which means that we're pretty ice rinky here in Missoula. But I don't think we're here to talk about the weather, Dr. Fryer. What is this podcast all about? Wow. Well, it's really about seeing if you and I can accumulate more show notes and article links than the previous week, I guess. <laughs> we are here to talk about the past week or so's technology headlines and news through an educational lens. And we co um, collect those links on a Google Doc, which has now historically been actually broken up. It was finally getting laggy after, I don't know, was it 80 pages or something crazy, 245 shows? So we split off the first 200 shows, archived them, and you can still get to all the links. But the initial Google Doc has episodes 201 through 245. Um, that link is edtechsr.com slash links. But we um, always have a wide collection of topics that we collect. And by the way, we now have a Substack. And so if you are interested, um, my aspiration was to get that thing out every Friday. That happened the first week. And this week it happened last night, or actually this morning, I think is when I scheduled the, the link to go out. But anyway, so we have a Substack. You can subscribe. Um, it is edtechsr.substack.com. Um, we will send out not only the link to the podcast, but... All of the show notes we discuss and all those make it into the podcast show notes, but also the articles that we don't talk about. But you can also just go to the Google Doc and get them all. But this week, our topics are Apple, Microsoft, Google, Meta, uh, the tech correction, media literacy, health and wellness, security, miscellaneous, and our geeks of the week. So, Dr. Neifer, where would you like to start tonight with the tech news? Well, before we jump to a bunch of rabbit holes, let's just, just do some kind of old-fashioned tech news to start off with. Let's start with some Apple news. Um, and a couple of these articles uh, are from last week. Um, but first, this is an article from a couple weeks back, and the Apple Insider reported on January 2nd that uh, later this year, they expect uh, a smaller Mac Pro with Apple Silicon to join the Mac Mini refresh uh, uh, later on in 2022. And for those that have been following kind of our um, uh, uh, podcast escapade through M1 Macs. The great thing, I'm, I'm now using a, a, an M1 Mac mini at home. I've got a, a MacBook Pro at work that I'm using with an M1 chip, and I absolutely love the platform. I have zero complaints about it. Uh, there's once in a while some wonkiness 
with a or with an Intel based uh, uh, piece of software that has to go through the Rosetta Stone 2 software that allows it to be run on the new Macs. But it's it's very occasional wonkiness. Um, I am starting to be reminded of some of the reasons why I left Mac OS in the first place, uh, in part because there are still some raw parts to the operating system, for example, that aren't as elegant as they could be. But overall, I've been happy with moving back to that as my primary um, uh, a primary operating system. But there's been a lot of discussion since the M1 was released two years ago, or I guess I should say probably a year and a half ago is more accurate, that... Um, you know, the, the Pro, the Mac Pro, the big uh, metal Mac Pro uh, is certainly uh, still on Intel for right now uh, after their refresh a couple of years back. But there are some exciting things going on to suggest that the Mac Mini of 2022 will be substantially better than the one that was previously released and that there will be some kind of Pro uh, um, uh, a desktop machine that could have lots of RAM in it and lots of storage space. So for those awaiting a Pro uh, desktop, uh, your wait will not last much longer. Uh, any thoughts, Dr. Fryer, about coming M1, or I guess maybe perhaps M1X or M2 Max? Well, I finally pulled the trigger on a used 27-inch old iMac, uh, which is what I've been using for quite a while here for the show. And so I, I'm going to be sticking with that. I mean, I've been using my M1 since before the summer, actually, last spring. It's almost been a year, I guess. And it is just an incredibly fast machine that is, uh, it's just, I don't know. I mean, I don't think, I don't want to go any slower. I'm, I'm using this older machine, so I kind of do, but yeah, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. So I think, cause both you and Peggy, I think have gone with the Mac mini with the external screen and that's a really persuasive, you know, scenario because, you know, you invest in a really nice large screen or set of screens and then you can just, you know, swap out the computer in the back. So especially if you're working from home and not having to, you know, take your, your show on the road uh, very yeah. much. Or if you are, grab your Chromebook and now, you know, Google Slides and everything else, you get every take everything with you. So it's a pretty good scenario. But okay, I'm here, here. Yeah, probably not going to be purchasing one myself. Um, and then a couple other uh, Apple updates. There's an interesting article from Mac Rumors on January 8th, 2022, to talk about how there's a lot of of guessing that the iPhone 14, which I presume will be released later in 2022, will be portless. That seems to be where uh, Apple is trying to go. And Mac Rumors talks a lot about the reasons why that's unlikely the case, including things like right now, plugging a phone in is still required for restoring an operating system. It, it, it provides some magic that wireless can't uh, to be able to do that. Um, and there's also a lot of power inefficiencies with wireless uh, 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 power as well. And you lose upwards of 50, 60, even 70 percent of the juice um, when you're using a wireless uh, application. The other thing I keep thinking about, too, that I think is really problematic is that um, I, I now have an iPhone 13 um, Pro. Um, I love it. It's a really wonderful device. I love the magnetic thing on back of the iPhone. Um, and in fact, um, I have a, and of course I just dropped it when I want to show it off. I have a pop on, um, a kind of a stand holder thing that, that fits on via magnet that I really like a lot. I wouldn't install something like this permanently, but the fact that it's there by magnet is super great. And my nightstand, uh, is, is, uh, mag powered. And so I, 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 I like that as well, but it's just going to create 
a shocking amount of, of, of e-ways to start with. Um, although I guess at some point they're going to move to away from the lightning port. So, uh, but I think the other thing that's also problematic is that, you know, uh, to own a cell phone knows what it's like to have to buy an emergency cable, um, in order to charge it, right? That's, that's, that's what owning a cell phone is like. If you've ever traveled for, before, forgot a charger or, um, I tend to travel with many chargers on me when I'm, uh, traveling for a, a conference or work travel in particular, but there have been times when, you know, I, I lost my charger or I left a charger at home. And that's, it's, the MagSafe is pretty proprietary technology. And to be honest, the third party alternatives aren't very good and they're expensive too. And it, that, I think that creates a, at least a convenience problem for iPhone users. So, um, Wes, uh, are you, have you moved to the Apple wireless charging revolution with phones? So my, my quick story. Oh my gosh. I, I write a, write a blog post about this. The temptation of the upgrade and really the differences in carriers and their strategies and stuff. So we, we're on AT&T fiber now. Um, AT&T does follow-ups with his customers, which I think, which I think is really smart. And lo and behold, they were like, oh, you can all switch off of T-Mobile and everyone can get a brand new iPhone 13 or 13 Pro, whatever you're on now, and you'll pay less per month and we'll lock you in for three years. And what I didn't do was calculate in advance because you got to pay all those taxes up front. And then the initial bills were going to come in much higher before rebates and all this. Anyway, I ended up literally like the day after, no, we're not going to do that. So, uh, and I'm actually, I love, I've, I got a, an iPhone 11 pro max on Swappa and I love it. And it's actually, I think a little thinner than the 13, which is a, a stouter and a bit thicker. Um, so, and then I actually had my, my watch broke, um, it cracked. And so I'm sporting now, I was on the generation three and I'm now a gen four, which is a little larger and is really nice, but again, from Swappa. So I, I, uh, we were, we were just so close. And of course, everyone's, oh, we're, we're all so excited about getting new phones. But the honest truth is we don't need them. Our phones are freaking yeah. awesome as they are now. And so, you know, at this point, you know, hey, if I win the Powerball, it may all change. But uh, use cars, you know, use phones um, and just older phones. Uh, just, you know, they're, they're working well for us. So it, it was interesting to see AT&T change this because I, I think this is the first time maybe with the model they've done that. Where it's like, this costs you a dollar, you know, but they're going to lock you in for multiple years. And um, anyway, it's just interesting to see what the different, you know, carriers and, and providers are, are, are doing. If we would end up moving, and I don't have an announcement tonight, I'm hoping for exciting things here in the next few weeks. But, uh, you know, we, we could move somewhere where T-Mobile service is absolutely terrible and we would have to change to either probably AT&T or Verizon. Uh, but I think a lot of the phones we have might actually switch that without a problem too. I, I don't know the, the days of like, Oh, you know, this, I don't know. I haven't had to look into that for a while as far as the phone compatibility, but I kind of think the newer ones are compatible with multiple carriers. So not going to be doing that now. I'm of course glad to see the continued March of, of all of it, but you know, at some point, um, I don't know. I think it's healthy to, to question whether, whether you want to just, you know, join that consumer push to, yeah, we got to have, have the latest. Um, there's a lot of reasons why that is fantastic. And, um, you know, 
different strokes for different folks. And I, I think, uh, you know, aren't you on the one where you're like now every year going to be able to upgrade? I think theoretically I can. It, it's probably not my strategy and, and, uh, maybe we'll, we'll have to see what, what my finances look like later in the year. But I mean, the, the thing, the, the thing that really I think also backed what you're saying, Wes, is that the wonderful thing about Apple strategy is that they are supporting phones well after they're not selling them anymore. And so, you know, in, in your case, the iPhone, 11 Pro uh, is is a, a two year old phone that is considered somewhat dated, right? From the from the standpoint of they're not selling it anymore, at least outside of the United States market. But that phone will probably receive at least three or four years of updates, if not more. And you'll be done with that phone in four years, right? That's especially when you're buying a used phone like that. I think that makes a huge okay. difference. And what brought me back to the Apple universe was buying a used iPhone XS which I'll admit I was absolutely in love with. It was a great phone. The battery was terrible because I think it had been used pretty hard for, um, uh, uh, I guess it was about two years at the point of which I bought it, uh, about a year and a month or so ago. Um, but I, that was fine. I was work at home time for me. I haven't traveled in a long time. And if I do travel, um, I'm in my car so I could just plug it in. So it was not a real huge deal for me. And I got a, a, a wicked trade-in deal from uh, T-Mobile to boot. So uh, I think all those things are really kind of huge part of, of the mystique of uh, uh, keeping an older Apple device around. One thing I'll say, and I've, I've got to think I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to use Google tasks some more. I don't know if anybody else does this, but like I, I just go through different things and of like, you know, trying to be productive and using this task manager. And, you know, I've, I've never found something that just the absolute wonderful. I've never, you know, I, I get everything done early and never have problems. But anyway, calling T-Mobile because of talking to, to AT&T and I I'd intended to do this earlier and just like kind of, what do you have for me now? Um, I have a friend who regularly does this with different, you know, bills and, you know, internet and other things and just seems to get great deals. Uh, I don't know if it's threatening, you know, to change and, and go with someone else, but I know with those magenta plans, we don't have any 5G compatible phones i don't think at this point in our house or our household and so anyway um it's not like we have to be on that 5g plan but i think that's something else for people to think about is even if you're not upgrading it can be beneficial to talk to your carrier and compare and shop and shop around and and see again competition benefits the consumer um and so i need to see we're, we're locked in and grandfathered in to an older plan that was really good but you know 10 gigs of data or whatever is it ain't what it used to be. And we all, you know, not all of us, but a lot of folks consume far more than they might have. If that all depends too, though, on how much you're on Wi-Fi, and if you happen to be working from home all day, then you know, right now that's not a big deal at all. You might not need any of that cellular coverage, but anyway, it's, uh, you know, wonderful. So, yeah. Shout out to Swappa. Another, you know, great victory with another, another purchase and just no, no problems at all with this. Um, but in addition to considering your options with hardware, it's probably good to consider, you know, what the different plan options are and if there's something that's, that's better or if the carrier can offer you some kind of incentive because they're, you know, trying to, to win business and keep business. So sometimes you can make that work for you as a consumer. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, I want to do one last Apple article. We'll actually uh, then segue to another topic, but uh, there's a, an interesting article from 9to5Mac. It's on January 9th. Chad Miller writes that the Apple headset is not an all-day device, and Apple has said that creating a metaverse is off-limits. And 
there is some kind of uh, mixed reality device that a lot of tech pundits say Apple's likely to release sometime this year. But what's really interesting about it is that it looks a little more like Google Glass than it does a, or at least it looks like it, it not looks by, 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 uh, by, by the actual physical looks, but the, the device usage itself seems a little more like the augmented reality of Google Glass than it does kind of the Oculus style, uh, uh, metaverse of the future. And what's interesting about that is that there are rumors that uh, uh, that Apple employees have leaked to the media to suggest that they don't consider this an all-day device. They don't want people wearing this device 24 hours a day, and that the concept of a metaverse has been basically ruled a no-go for Apple. They really think that that you want to keep a firmer a grip on reality, and that's a pretty bold, uh, 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 I guess, contrarian view compared to where what other technology uh, companies seem to be headed towards. Uh, any thoughts about Apple avoiding the metaverse? Well, I think that would go along with, uh, with Apple fitness and health and, you know, getting outside. And I mean, that's certainly something with the watch and I'm more into that than ever with, you know, health and wellness tracking and back to my fitness pal, my meals and water and all this kind of stuff. So <clears throat> yeah, I would think that Apple encouraging people to, Remember to go outside, you know, not, not stay, not stay plugged in all the time. You know, obviously these companies benefit from us utilizing them, but I, I think there's genuine encouragement on the Apple screen time app and just the whole push that Apple has towards fitness and wellness. I mean, I don't see anyone else's tech keynotes and things like that and be like, man, I really need to get a new workout plan or whatever. I mean, I just, <laughs> but Apple's, you know, has done that. I mean, I'm not, signed up for whatever it is, the Apple Fitness Plus or whatever that thing is. Anyway, not going there yet, but um, I could totally see Apple doing that. And then, because I think the augmented reality side of the future, you know, with virtual reality, augmented reality is is ginormous because being able to, and I'm not saying I want to do this. I don't know that we could try, you know, here I am looking out at this at the street and here are my directions, kind of like a heads up view, yeah. you know, on your, uh, you know, uh, windshield or whatever of your car, you know, and being able to see, you know, recommendations or these are Yelp, Yelp reviews or whatever. I just I really and I think Apple will do this much more than I have faith in Facebook with Oculus doing it is not not going to the ready player one absolute nightmare of, you know, every square inch of, of advertising space, potential advertising space is being used. Um, so this is something that's been teased for years. Um, Apple will, I'm sure, be very, very judicious and careful in pulling the trigger on this because at whatever point they come out with their, you know, glasses, uh, whatever that is, um, you know, it, it also may not be the, f the, I mean, they're not the first to market. Google Glass was out there and there's other things too, but you know, beyond Google Glass. But when Apple does have their product launch for their headset glasses, that, that will be significant, but it's going to be real interesting to see what I could say Facebook. I should say Meta, whatever Zuckerberg's company. Um, it's going to be super, super interesting to see what they are going to do and what they're going to push. And the hardware, because one of the things I think I might have mentioned on the show 
in the last few weeks that I've read somewhere. And I know I should have my attribution better than that. <clears throat> Zuckerberg wants to have hardware, you know, because with Apple, with the phone, with the watch, with iPad, with, with laptops, obviously phones are, are the, the lion's share of, of uh, product, you know, monthly, you know, quarterly sales or whatever. Zuckerberg with Facebook and, and now Meta, um, does not have hardware in the game. And, and that was a big part of them with Oculus. And that's part of the play. And if you, I think we've got some other articles about metaverse stuff in the show notes, the billions of dollars that are being spent and are being pledged to be spent in the next couple of years to develop this is like shocking. It's incredible. Can you get your head around how much money that is? So yeah, Apple's going to pull their trigger here, but uh, I think that it, it will be natural for them to not just follow suit with somebody else. And the, the stand that they've taken for privacy, I can see them taking a stand for, you know, experiences in the real world and, you know, fitness and and, and a play for, for maybe augmented, where maybe Facebook is going to be go, going more pure virtual reality metaverse. I could see Apple, you know, possibly doing something that is more more augmented leaning. But all of that is pure conjecture. But hey, I'm telling you, this this future is is speeding towards us far faster than we probably realize. And the students that are in our classrooms right now um, are going to be growing up on it. You know, just like we we grew up on, you know, the early days of the web. They're growing up in Roblox and Minecraft and these early iterations of the metaverse, and it's going to come into maturity, I think, far faster than maybe a lot of us realize. That's a really good segue to then um, where a couple related Metaverse articles. The first one is actually from, let's see, the January 16th edition of The Verge from Emma Roth. It's talking about how Walmart is looking to jump into the Metaverse, and they had some recent um, filings. I believe they were trademark filings uh, that uh, Walmart is starting to evolve its branding a little bit, and uh, there, there's two two places where we could see them, uh, uh, actually three places where we could see them uh, starting to kind of work into the metaverse. Uh, the first one is they have plans to do some N NFT work, uh, the non-fungible tokens that we've talked about a couple of times here in the past, uh, buying images, for example, uh, owning digital copies of images, uh, uh, which can be a, a whole new marketplace uh, for visual, uh, uh, particularly digital visual uh, pieces, cryptocurrencies, and then kind of a broader, uh, you know, metaverse offerings. And they, uh, they've uh, actually trademarked uh, or trying to trademark verse to home, verse to curb, and verse to store. I'm assuming verse is some reference to uh, a, a metaverse-based shopping experience, but uh, that's a sign, of course, of, of things to come because uh, Walmart uh, generally uh, 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 doesn't bring things to market unless they have some proof it works within uh, regional markets first. They also tend to be, because they're such a large retail presence, particularly in the United States, they tend to be um, uh, uh, well ahead of things. And if they're going in that direction of, of, of it's what's to come. And then I think you put in these two articles uh, last week, uh, Wes, uh, one of them is, or they're both about Facebook and the metaverse. Anything to report there? Yeah, this uh, first one, these are both from the Financial Times. I actually found this first one from the second one I'll mention. Uh, this is the earlier article from November the 12th, 2021. How will Facebook keep its metaverse safe for users? And part of the the uh, tagline here is 
they won't, you know, keep it completely safe. Um, building on what we talked about last week with Roblox and just content moderation overall. I don't think I put it in the show notes, but I just listened to Kara Swisher's interview with the new Parler CEO today. It's fantastic. And there, you know, there's a very clear admission by people like that, that they're going to have policies and they're going to try to police stuff, but they're not going to be able to, you know, use the AI algorithms are not going to save us and, and, and just keep all of the, you know, community guideline and, and content guideline violating, co- you know, content out. Um, this particular article cites an internal memo from Meta or what, what, for, the company formerly known as Facebook, uh, Andrew Bosworth laying out the scope, the scale of the challenge. Um, they have a 10, this is where the number comes from, $10 billion a year budget that just one company named Meta that used to be called Facebook is spending to build out the metaverse. And so this art, this uh, internal memo warns that virtual reality can be a toxic environment, especially for women and minorities. Um, and he added that this could be an existential threat to Facebook's ambitious plans uh, if it turned off mainstream customers from the medium entirely. Uh, so the issue about content and speech and expression and how are you going to navigate this? And are you going to be able to like cordon off areas? Let's say the M for mature areas, they're still going to be there, uh, but they're going to be, you know, somehow keeping children away from them. Um, anyway, that was a, a pretty interesting article. But again, that came from the one that I actually found first. And this was Financial Times, January 17th. And it's interesting because you were just citing some patents from Walmart. These are patents from Facebook. We hear this about Apple and lots of the rumor blogs, you know, will say, oh, this, you know, patent got filed. I think Apple's about to, you know, release some, you know, got some, uh, you know, VR glasses or AR glasses or something. Headline is Facebook patents reveal how it intends to cash in on the metaverse. Uh, now I had the opportunity to stay home for about five days this last week as I dealt with a little uh, COVID situation. I'm all back and good. Uh, But one of the things that I did in addition to binging Stranger Things season two was I watched Ready Player One again. I don't know if uh, Peggy, you've seen Ready Player One. I think Jason, you have. Um, It is incredible. Um, Now, of course, the book is better, but it really is a vision for what this, you know, wear your headset almost all day environment can be. And when there's so many people all over the world you know, being able to have all these different kinds of experiences. And so this just absolutely sounds like Ready Player One when they're talking about these different kinds of digital goods, this virtual store, um, the uh, hyper-targeted advertising and sponsored content. Um, Nick Clegg, at Meta's head of global affairs, told... Financial Times during a recent interview. For us, the business model in the metaverse is commerce-led. Clearly, ads play a part in this. And so these patents are showing, it's kind of funny, uh, sketches of this, you know, person with a a knight helmet on holding a a shield and a sword. Um, But it's this wearable magnetic sensor system. And so the sketch gives an example of a soldier in a sword and armor appearing in a virtual world. Um... The ways in which, if you've watched Ready Player One, like they have this, you know, what is it called? The boot suit, you know, but these different, um, they, they look like armor, but it's it's different, um, you know, 
different articles of clothing that you're putting on, but they're pressure sensitive and they're going to have heat and they're going to squeeze you or they're going to give, they're going to give you all these sensations. Oh my gosh. You know, this, this stuff is, it's like, it's almost too much. And and I think that probably just happens with change with us. Like that's why we have to have the passing of the generations or stuff, but Oh man, it just, it really makes you think about how science fiction has become a reality. So it's fascinating to see how these patents are kind of showing the cards of where companies are going. And for those of us that thought, hey, you know, Francis Haugen's testifying before Congress just as a little distraction. Facebook's changed their name. No, no, this is not a small thing. Um, I was in San Francisco in 2007 when Steve Jobs on the stage announced, you know, the iPhone. And that was exciting. But at the very end of the speech, you know, he said this really small thing. Oh, and by the way, we're not Apple computer anymore. We're just Apple. You know, that wasn't a small thing either. Um, already at that point, um, you know, iTunes was vast because iPods were, were, you know, ascendant. Um, and, you know, not long after that, with the iPhone exploding, you know, iPhones and the mobile technology far eclipsed Apple's income on computers. So <clears throat> we're going to see meta. And this is what I think good companies end up doing. They don't succumb to the innovators dilemma where they are so focused on their old product that they can't innovate. We've seen Microsoft struggle with that and they're, they're doing it. They're, they're making it, I think. Um, but this idea of a pivot um, is absolutely what we're seeing Facebook do to the point where it, the company is no longer Facebook. Uh, interesting that this is an article from January, right? And it says Facebook patents reveal. Well, you know, I think that's because of name recognition. If they had tagged the headline meta patents, you know, people would be like, what does that mean? But it is the company meta. So your thoughts about this, uh, Dr. Neifer, are you ready for the ready player one environment and all of the, Various and sundry experiences which it could afford you and your wife. Um, I I think I'm probably okay with this. We're waiting for this a while, and it's funny you mentioned this West too because I I wonder if maybe this is just not going to be our generation's thing. So I mean, I I do know, or I, ha I have a lot of friends that have tried out a few which own Oculus headsets and and like it quite a bit, but it's still for them, an occasional thing, right? It's not something that they want to spend a lot of extensive time in. And I'm reminded, uh, well, there's been a lot of uh, media attempts to kind of portray what the metaverse might look like. And it all felt pretty dystopian, but also that was uh, supposed technology, right? In the same way that, you know, if you... Um, uh, uh, if you read any of Arthur C. Clarke's uh, 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 novels about the future, that... Uh, it, it, things look uh, more nuanced than, than that and things are thinner and brighter and faster than people suppose computers might look. And so maybe a, a, a metaverse may look a, a lot more compelling and real, but uh, I, I like Apple's approach. The notion that it's about augmentation and not replacement. And that's where I'm kind of hoping things end up going. Well, the article you shared about Walmart, make, there's so many articles. I think this may be the most ridiculous number of links that we've ever had. But hey, folks, you can just sign up for our Substack and receive them all in your email. Um, I put this one at the bottom of our tech correction. We have about, I don't know, eight or nine tech correction articles today. This is a recode article from January 13th called The True Cost of Amazon's Low Prices. And the reason your Walmart patent 
Metaverse article reminded me of that is just thinking about big companies, big tech and small companies and entrepreneurs and, you know, where are the advocates for the, the entrepreneurs and the small companies? This is an absolutely fascinating article. Um, it's part of a Recode series they're doing on big tech and antitrust. Um, this one was written by Sarah Morrison, and it is talking about um, bills, which I think we might get to under the tech correction, which have been proposed and, and written. Um, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, um, which is an antitrust bill. There's another um there was a report uh, that the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, was really, quote, ramping up its years-long antitrust investigation into Amazon's cloud computing arm, Amazon Web Services. Um, you know, Amazon is so ginormous. This goes into the, the, the ways that Amazon uses data, and because it not only sells products, but it also owns and manages the platform, you know, it can give preferential placement to its own products and it can use the data from from the sales of all you know products to be able to you know target and, and favor its own um it's interesting because they'll talk about you know the value that's brought to third-party sellers and i actually registered over the weekend to be an amazon seller um we are anticipating moving I don't have any news, but I think we I think we might move this summer. And so I got to get rid of some books. My wife has said, we are not moving all these books and I don't want to just give them all to Goodwill. So anyway, you can register yourself as a seller and they'll Amazon has statistics about how much of the volume um, and also monetarily what it, what it is every every year or whatever that third party sellers are having on the platform. But this article basically uh, breaks down. You know, the ways in which Amazon especially is abusing its power, you know, squeezing uh, sellers and, um, you know, how it works. And I wish I don't know that they'll they'll do tours. We have some massive, massive Amazon facilities here in Oklahoma City. I have a, a friend. Um, who had worked for them for a while at one of their distribution centers, um, helping run their delivery trucks. I think, I mean, a lot of that secret is proprietary and I don't think they just, you know, bring groups of school kids or anybody else in to just necessarily tour, but um, it is a huge impact on our, our society and our economy. Um, we do have a lot going on with legislation, um, which we've got some articles about. And so anyway, I just, I will commend that article. And I, I think it's worth, all of us considering the role of entrepreneurs and um, small business and, you know, we've got these network effects that continue to allow the bigger to get even bigger, the, the big to get bigger, I guess. I'm not saying that very well. Um, the big fish keep on eating the small fish and they are getting bigger and bigger all the time. So I, I think these are these are big questions. It'll be in this is an understatement. It'll be interesting to see how these kinds of things and people's anger and frustration around them uh, manifest itself in the elections uh, coming up, both midterm and the um, you know next presidential election. So any thoughts that you have about Amazon and their their business model and just kind of this whole nexus of, um, you know, Amazon's big tech and, and perhaps that's a segue to some of the articles you put into about tech correct. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I would say is that um, I, it, it, Amazon was inevitable. Like, I, if it wasn't Amazon, it was someone else, and that I think someone would at some point figure out how to uh, monopolize the global supply chains to to bring a lot of things cheaper. And 
the the I think it goes back to broadly when we talk about tech correction. One of the things that I think has been the conclusion of the tech correction over and over and over again that that there's unlikely to be a comprehensive regulatory savior. It's also unlikely that the tech companies themselves will implode. Uh, despite you know people have tried protests and all sorts of it's not by Amazon Day, and I've heard nothing of the, of the sort that that suggests it's impacted any of that discussion at all. I wonder if it goes back to, you know, are there ways to connect us maybe using the technologies to be more human about things? And I don't think that's a very good answer to the corporate problem uh, and maybe retail problem that Amazon inspires. But in the end, it probably is about finding ways to make technology more human or more humane uh, to use maybe a more directed word. That's the all. Center for Humane Technology was probably yeah. named with just such ideas in mind. Yep, absolutely. Okay, um, well- well, what topics do we can we go to next? We're about mm, two thirds of the way through the show. Yeah. So a couple of the tech correction articles. Um, uh, actually, I picked this article uh, uh, because of you, uh, Dr. Fryer. But uh, yesterday's Verge talked about how that that one of the ways the Democrats are approaching uh, um, uh, regulation of big technology is to ban something that that they're referring to as surveillance advertising. And to be honest. Um, the term that, that Dr. Fryer would use more frequently is surveillance capitalism because it describes kind of the broader uh, marketplace of data. But, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that Silicon Valley doesn't want. And that's why I think you're starting to see some uh, efforts. Who knows if they're honest or earnest in any way, but efforts by Silicon Valley, I think, to figure out ways to, to regulate themselves before someone externally regulates I honestly don't know what this does. Uh, not not that I don't think it have impact. It had extraordinary impact, unless they felt full of uh, exceptions that that make it uh, a toothless uh, a regulatory attempt. But the bottom line is that this would change the entire technology industry uh, uh, if um, we go in, in that direction. Because I just don't know a lot of advertising that isn't surveillance advertising. I mean, there could be some very nuanced ways they attempt to regulate that with specifics, but I'm under the general assumption that all targeted advertising is ultimately surveillance advertising because otherwise, how would you target it? So, um, Wes, uh, any thoughts, uh, being kind of our surveillance capitalism expert, any thoughts about this uh, 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 attempted at bat for Democrats to try to regulate uh, big tech advertising? It's most likely this is going to be, you know, just something to get news and press and not to actually pass. I mean, this kind of legislation is exactly the reason why I'm sure Google, Facebook and Amazon are spending millions, if not billions of dollars on lobbyists to try and influence legislation. So um, I think that I've said this before, we do need to have more privacy protections in the United States. We don't have a GDPR like Europe, a general directive, whatever that is on privacy regulation. Um, the language here is really interesting because it is picking up on this idea of surveillance. And I think that probably when people are hearing this, uh, that is something that maybe would strike a chord with them. It's so fascinating. And I'll mention, I'm not going to talk about the geek of the week yet, but like, Certain things in society require a lot of time for people to get their head around and to support. And I think the, the, the regulation of privacy is perhaps an example of that. Um, the velocity with which things are changing, though, is, you know, it's just just increasing. It's, it's not slowing down. So 
I'm personally heartened uh, by the fact that we're having some legislators have conversations like this. But like you, Jason, I don't know exactly what the effect of this would be. And that's why I think it's more kind of a show rather than something that's going to actually, you know, pass and, and have an impact. I was trying to think of the guy, he was on Twit, and his name is Jason, I think, too, actually. And it's like, it's not six colors, seven colors. Oh, I'm trying to Google that. He's in it. He's got uh, Jason he uh, Snell. Uh, Snell. Yes. Thank you. yes. Uh, so Jason Snell, who's a very, very smart guy, um, and he has six colors. Yeah, Apple technology and other stuff, and it's a podcast. He was on the Twit podcast you know, in the last few years. I don't know when it was, but he was talking. That's a real specific. Citation. That's not going to pass a debate round. Citation. He was on Twitch sometime in the last few years. Hey, at least I got his name. We were able to grab that, <laughs> but yeah, there was, there was some guy on Twitter that said something. No, Jason Snell was talking about how marketers basically don't have any limit to how granular they want to get, right? The more specific that they can get in terms of selling their ads. Yes, you're going to be able to get, the, you know, our 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 listeners or our readership are, you know, 79% this age bracket, this demographic. Um, and, and generally people who are paying for advertising, you know, the more information that they can get. That's why Facebook, if you've ever tried to place or have placed a Facebook ad, and I don't know how much this has changed recently, it is mind blowing to look at that targeted advertising, like to be doing the, the targeted advertising. So, um, what Jason was saying is that you're ne you're really never going to have limits come in from the advertising side, from that company side. And that is fundamentally what Facebook and, um, and Google are about. They are about selling advertisements through data to folks that want to, you know, sell goods and services. So I think that the idea of self-regulation here is, you know, like you said, it's they're going to try and do some of it to stem off the regulators. But, um, you know, it's ultimately this is the guy. This is Shoshana Zuboff of Harvard. Her book, Surveillance Capitalism, that I have not read, that is a tome. Um, you know, this is the undergirding economic philosophy of the 21st century digital economy. It's surveillance capitalism. So it's interesting that this is being posed. But I, I, I think that companies like Facebook and Google would see this kind of language as kind of an existential threat. And you can bet that they're going to figure out how to, how to defeat that. But there's issues here as we talk about pretty much every week with the tech correction and those issues are not going away. Um, maybe we can make some of those not be as egregious and, and terrible. That would be a wonderful thing, but to sort of, drive a stake into the heart of the surveillance capitalism driven digital economy with one law, like I would be shocked. I don't, I don't think that's happening. Interesting. That's being proposed though. Yep. Absolutely. Um, let's see. And then maybe this is a, a, a also a, a rabbit hole, but, um, well, we'd never get uh, into those. Surely, yeah, surely you're not going to give us a rabbit hole. Uh, PC Magazine uh, reported some data on January 12th saying that we're spending about a third of our waking hours 
staring at our phones. That's up uh, 30% uh, uh, from 2019. And uh, a state of mobile 2022 report is the source on this. And, and, and I guess, I mean, I still have the same concerns I had as two, three, four years ago that, that maybe we are a touch addicted to our devices and that uh, the digital distraction is real. I'm willing to give us a little while longer here just because we're in the midst of a pandemic. And in a lot of cases, I think that there's a way to have a healthy relationship with the device, uh, even if you're using it a lot. But at some point, you know, uh, it, it, we probably need to have to start these conversations again. People were thought uh, as being almost uh, uh, heartless or or, or um, thoughtless of, about the situation in 2020 when people were, were talking about spending a lot of time um, on their phones. But I think as uh, the pandemic becomes endemic, which is where I believe it's going, um, you know, we need people to start thinking about plans to not use their devices or ways we can encourage people to do uh, a, a, a more balanced look of technology and its use in our daily lives. So I, I, I certainly um, my my device usage is up pretty substantially. Um, in fact, if, if anything, I've probably moved off a smaller screen to a larger screen in that I watch more television on an actual television uh, as opposed to on. Uh-oh. Either I have gone offline or Dr. Neifer has, because I am not hearing him. So... How about now? Oh, he's back. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. Was I got, I a, I got a weird... Both of my windows were doing little spinny things, so okay. I wonder if my connection was temporarily erupted, so... Uh, well, where... Uh, well, let me, let's go, let's go, let's go to the chat room and, and give a shout out to Peggy's comment here saying, I don't think screen time is necessarily a good measure of overuse of devices. Yeah. Well, she's kind of echoing what you're saying about the pandemic. Yeah. Here's what I'm thinking. It's not, this isn't just device use. This is about the way in which it's like blended learning. How do sources of information and ideas, and this can be entertainment, can be all kinds of things. But how does the world of bits of zeros and ones and data, you know, flow into your brain and become part of your consciousness and your day? And I see the blurring of the lines uh, with smart speakers because and I'm not I'm I haven't completely fallen in love with Google podcasts. I love my um, my pocket pocket casts app and i'm still doing most of my stuff with my phone i need to see if with 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 um this newer watch i can you know do my podcast on the go and stuff like that but you know quick story (laughs) i was i've got now some recipes for lights and things like that we're harry potter fans and so now i can go into the the living room i do this every morning now i can say hey g lumos which is the Harry Potter spell for light. And that turns on two lights, the television and the Christmas tree. And then we can say knocks and turn it off. Um, I am listening to things and, you know, my, our, our, our youngest daughter, my wife and I almost, I wouldn't say constantly, but every single day are listening to podcasts, watching videos, consuming content, thinking about things that we would not have, you know, absent the device. And so as we get the, you know, AR, VR glasses and headsets and these other things, um, I think hopefully, and I have more faith with Apple than Facebook on this, hopefully that is going to, when you talk about a third of our time spent looking at our phones, 
I mean, maybe we're going to be looking at people more, but if we want to have some side data, you know, it's going to, it's going to be there on our screen and we're, we're not going to necessarily be, be face down in the data, but I don't know. I, I know that my life has, and this is not a shock to anybody. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm betting this isn't the only podcast you listen to. My life is enriched in so many ways by the fact that I, you know, have this device that I carry around and especially those podcast subscriptions and, you know, I mean, I'm listening to music and other things too, but it is just, it's, it's stunning. So screen time, I agree. I think we need a term that kind of goes beyond that. But when we tend to say screen time, the assumption is that that needs to be lower. And I do agree that we don't need to just certainly be heads down, you know, looking at our phone and not interacting with people in our lives. I don't think that at all. Um, but I do think there's tremendous value that's been that's being brought into our lives with these connections and devices and whatever you want to call this experience, which is, yes, it's not just screen time. It's it's more than that, too. So that that, that is a pretty big number. And, hey, we're not an investment show or a political show. But, you know, the companies in the pandemic, not just Zoom, but lots and lots of companies that helped people connect and you know, look at Roblox we talked about in the show last week, the massive explosion in, in utilization and usage um, that, you know, yes, we're in a pandemic, but I think we are also seeing people's behavior patterns um, and preferences for entertainment and, and interaction, you know, change. And those things may never be the same because of what the pandemic has done. Although your stack of books gives me optim- optimism, Jason, that <laughs> eBooks may not, you know, Take over the knife for home. Yeah, well, and I got to say, I, I I own and love my Kindle, but uh, I've been generally inching back towards print books as of late. Uh, and and part of it is what I love about a print book is that you can buy a used one, so that that it feels like there's a some double interest in there. So, um, I'd like to hit two quick Google articles, and then um, whenever you'd like to finish up, Wes, and then I think we're at the top of the hour. Uh, two quick, interesting Google articles. These are both related to Chromebooks. Chrome Unbox released a video this morning. I received it a couple of days ago or a couple of days early because I am a patron or Patreon uh, uh, subscriber to Chrome Unbox. But they have tested MediaTek's new, um, I don't r- really know how to pronounce this, Companio processor. It's, it's, this is a processor that's been uh, rumored for a while, but it's their 1380 processor. And they describe it as really, really fast. And they weren't able, because they, they had an early uh, uh, a hardware uh, review unit, they weren't, they, they were asked not to run uh, any uh, benchmark software on there. So they didn't report any benchmarks, but they did do some interesting hands on testing. There's a great, about, about 10 minute video on Chrome Unboxed that um, will kind of walk you through uh, 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 what they did, but really fast processor and uh, 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 seemingly uh, competitive with, with Intel. And one of the things I wonder about 2022 is if this is the year that ARM processors kind of break through on the Chromebook. Uh, they are always, uh, almost always associated with pretty slow performance, pretty disappointing performance. Uh, there is some recent Snapdragon processors that have made it into Chromebooks that my understanding are pretty decent. But I am excited because this could bring a whole new uh, uh, element of usefulness to cheaper uh, uh, Chromebooks, which I think can only help uh, uh, the platform and the phenomenon. 
And then another word to be made aware of, uh, HP has re- released a new uh, kind of sub-brand called Fortis, and uh, it, it is a brand name that's associated with educational devices. And so there are two new Fortis Chromebooks uh, that have been released. Uh, meager, meager is not the right word, modest specs is, is what I would uh, say is the, the uh, consistency between those two. But it, it appears that HP might be trying to you know, push a, maybe a student-driven model that has a, a, a subtitle to it. So interesting things to look forward to in the Chrome OS universe. And I would just remind everybody, it was only a few short years ago that we were talking about netbooks, these incredibly underpowered, yeah. small-screen devices um, and, and had a web at our fingertips that was far, far less capable than it is today. So those kind of devices and the fact that this year with our with our new Dell 11-inch 1350 Chromebooks, I think is the model, maybe 1360. But anyway, new new touchscreen, like it's great. I'm, I'm sketchnoting all the time now with my kids. And I like the fact that I don't have to charge the stylus, actually. Um, and it's not not an Apple Pencil, but it's really, really good. And I'm excited to see this. I think this is a great thing, not only for consumers, but it also is for students. And one of the things I might have mentioned, because I'm I'm considering what my educational research agenda might be if Dr. Fryer would go to a university uh, here at some point in the not too distant future. I'd love to, to know how have schools shifted as far as one-to-one devices, Chrome devices versus iOS versus macOS versus just Windows. You know, what does that look like? My sense is that the vast majority of schools are on Chrome devices and that's been a huge, you know, shift and that that probably is going to is going to be have some permanency in terms of, you know, people don't t- people and di- districts and organizations like people tend to, you know, kind of imprint on a platform and stick with it for a while. So this is good news. And I'm I'll be interested to see what our uh, friend Kevin Tofel has to say about these as well, since he's probably going to chime in on this from a Chrome standpoint. Yep, absolutely. OK, Wes, close to the top of the hour. Anything else we need to hit this week? Oh, wow. Um, let's see. There's so many other articles. Um, let's hit a, well, this is one, this is a wellness one. And I'm I'm curious to know if you've checked this out and if, because all of this with apps and stuff, it's interesting to say, Hey, is it worth, you know, paying for paying for this subscription? All right. So this is, this is a company called well story. This is from TechCrunch. This is an older article. Actually, uh, this was kind of the best one that I found that was a summary. It says, WellStory packs a lot of science into its app to measure your stress levels. I've actually subscribed to this app. And um, the way I found it is through uh, If This Then That. I have a lot of recipes, and that's one of the little subscriptions I pay for as well, are these different recipes that allow me to do different things with smart devices and with Twitter hashtags and Google Docs and things like that. Anyway, this is a company founded by three engineers using a lot of AI. Um, and in addition to the kinds of data that your watch will just, you know, collect with you, it's interesting. It measures like the, the um, delay between heartbeats. You put your finger over both the, the uh, forward facing camera or no, the rear facing camera and the flash and hold it there for 60 seconds, and it's doing all these calculations and creating these graphs. The thing that also appealed to me about this is you can use If This Then That recipes to bring in your Facebook utilization, your Instagram uh, utilization, 
and it it looks for correlations between your your pat your habits and your patterns and your activity and then what it sees happening with you know your uh your physical wellness and the kinds of things that it's noticing with heart rhythms and things like that so have you ever heard of well tory before or no, and it's also uh, now installed on my phone. I'm curious about that, uh, in part because I think one of the most powerful things about the Apple platform is just the extraordinary number of devices it plugs into to make sense of data, um, but I will take a look at it. Okay, cool, because that's exactly what ap- appealed to me was this idea of integration with HealthKit. And, of course, you know, there's the danger of hacking. And, oh, my gosh, is somebody going to get all of my data when I authorize, you know, this the one app? It's not the one app to rule them all. HealthKit is kind of the app that everything goes into. Um, so I haven't discovered anything that's just revolutionary yet, but I thought that was definitely pretty interesting. And let me see. Um, let's do one quick security one, and then we can round it out. There are several different articles about cyber attacks and um uh, ransomware. And so this was an article from uh, Government Technology on January 13th, 2022. Albuquerque schools cancel classes after cyber attack. And this was, I think, a ransomware attack. And similar to the ones that we've heard of before, these, you know, put a lot of pressure on school officials because, you know, we're relying upon um, data to you know, do things like enroll kids and, uh, you know, not only give out grades, but, uh, you know, food and transportation and, and all, all kinds of things. So um, the cyber attack um, led to the cancellation of some school and uh, other, I guess, schools in the area had been hit by other kinds of attacks. Uh, backups are the key and preparation is the key. So We've said it before. We'll say it again. If you don't have a plan for what to do for yourself personally with the data that you have that's valuable and then for your organization, get that plan together. You'll want to get that plan together now before you are in the midst of an attack or have, you know, face something that, that could be potentially crippling, you know, and then you have to pay a pay a fine or pay a ransom. So, all right. Well, do you have a geek of the week for us tonight, sir? I do. I'd like to share a, a site that I've already used, but I read something interesting about it recently. Uh, it's podchaser.com. It's a podcast and pod episode search engine. And um, I had been working on a presentation for the now postponed NCCE, which was supposed to be next, no, two weeks from now. Um, and I, I, I hope to get to present this sometime soon, uh, uh, whether it's virtually or face-to-face. But one of the topics I'm very much interested in is podcasting as a content uh, 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 a reservoir because there's just so many wonderful uh, podcasts out there that I think would be useful in a lot of content classrooms. And so uh, the reason why I, the, this uh, recently kicked back up to the top of my attention is because they just hired a librarian for the first time because they're looking for ways to try to organize information inconsistent and um, uh, 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 I, I guess expected ways so that people can find more information. I think it's a wonderful effort on the pot of, on the part of podcasts, Dr. Fryer. And I've got two quick ones. Um, my first one is one tab, uh, one tab. I, have, I had a fifth grader this week that uh, 
basically just has almost never restarted her Chromebook. And she just hates to restart because she loses, you know, will lose her tabs. So <laughs> I showed her one tab, said, look at this, save your tabs, restore them. Let's get you restarted. That's really important from a security standpoint. Um, and it is amazing to me. Like we, we probably could do psychological analyses of folks who keeps, you know, 20 plus tabs open at all times. Um, you know, get a, get a tab uh, suspender to, to help with that. But the one I'm most excited about is the Moonrise podcast from um, the Washington Post. Have you heard of this, Jason? The the backstory of of Apollo and the Moon. This is amazing. So this I I, you know love listening to podcasts. One of the things that I notice both the New York Times and the Washington Post does. I listen to Post reports, which you don't have to be a subscriber to the Post to listen to that. And these are short articles, but they'll do you know promotional ads about other shows. This one is is out in all episodes. It's not like being released right now, but the author of Moonrise, um, who is, let's see, Liz Cunningham, um, want to uncover the real origin story behind the United States' decision to go to the moon in the 50 years since the moon landing as presidential documents have been declassified and secret programs revealed. A wild story has begun to emerge. Moonrise, a Washington Post audio miniseries hosted by Lillian Cunningham, digs into the nuclear arms race of the Cold War, the transformation of American society and politics, even the birth of science fiction to unearth what really drove us to the moon. Come along with us on a fascinating journey from Earth to the moon. This is great. Um, I think Eric Langhorst hopefully will be listening to the show, and I know he's a huge NASA fan. In fact, rumor is that my wife and I are going to see Eric and as well as our son here in a few weeks at the NASA Educators Conference at the Johnson Space Center. Um, Lillian Cunningham. Yes, thank you, Peggy. Um, and so anyway, this is just like I've learned more about Werner von Braun, but then um, this guy whose name I'm not going to be able to say, who is like the father of of really science fiction in not just the United States, but the West. He was the one who edited this uh, magazine called Astounding. And this guy you might have heard of, Isaac Asimov, you know, came and wrote for him. And basically we grew up, well, we <clears throat> folks in the U.S. in terms of entertainment grew up on cowboy and Indian sort of West, Wild West stories for just decades. But then that sort of started to fade in like the 1920s and 30s. And then what came in was science fiction. And I mentioned earlier in the show, things take a while to permeate into the consciousness of, of uh, society. Um, it is fantastic. It's awesome. It's called Moonrise and it is free. And wherever you get your podcasts, just put in Moonrise and check it out. All right, Dr. Neifer, where can folks find you when you're not illuminating our minds here with the tech news on the tech situation room? The blessed, the, the blessed, the best way, or the best place to find the me. The best and blessed way the, to get yeah, yeah, there Father you go. Neifer. Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach is where to find me there. All right. And I am W Fryer on the Twitters. Westfryer.com will give you lots of links to connect. So we want to thank Peggy George for joining us live. We want to thank our other silent viewers. Uh, we had a couple other live folks join us tonight, and we always appreciate people coming in live. Feel free to join us if you can, generally on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central, something like 2 a.m. UTC. Um, and all of our show notes, you can find a couple different ways. Go to edtechsr.com where you'll find small 32 kilobit audio versions and approximately 110, 120 megabyte video versions. <clears throat> but you can also subscribe to our sub stack at edtechsr.com. 
www.substack.com. You can also find us on YouTube and definitely check us out on Twitter and our Facebook page because we're always updating. And any of those are ways that we will also let you know when we actually do need to take a week off, which does happen from time to time. So we want to thank you for joining us and encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe. It is going to be an exciting, I'm afraid, couple of weeks here as our numbers of COVID are still continuing to go up. So stay safe out there. And I am here to tell you, being triple vaccinated, you know, can be a great thing. I'm very thankful for the vaccines and want to encourage everybody, if you have not, and you can, to get vaccinated. It's good for you. It's good for the community. Be safe, everyone. Yep. Good night. Bye-bye. Take care.